10. G. Inhabitants. All the great classes of animals, beasts of the field, fowls of the air, creeping things, and things which dwell in the waters, flourished upon the globe long ages before the chalk was deposited. Very few, however, if any, of these ancient forms of animal life were identical with those which now live. Certainly not one of the higher animals was of the same species as any of those now in existence. The beasts of the field, in the days before the chalk, were not our beasts of the field, nor the fowls of the air such as those which the eye of man has seen flying, unless his antiquity dates infinitely further back than we at present surmise. If we could be carried back into those times, we should be as one suddenly set down in Australia before it was colonized. We should see mammals, birds, reptiles, fishes, insects, snails, and the like, clearly recognizable as such, and yet not one of them would be just the same as those with which we are familiar, and many would be extremely different. From that time to the present, the population of the world has undergone slow and gradual, but incessant, changes. There has been no grand catastrophe no destroyer has swept away the forms of life of one period, and replaced them by a totally new creation but one species has vanished and another has taken its place, creatures of one type of structure have diminished, those of another have increased, as time has passed on, and thus, while the differences between the living creatures of the time before the chalk and those of the present day appear startling, if placed side by side, we are led from one to the other by the most gradual progress, if we follow the course of nature through the whole series of those relics of her operations which she has left behind, and it is by the population of the chalk sea that the ancient and the modern inhabitants of the world are most completely connected. The groups which are dying out flourish, side by side, with the groups which are now the dominant forms of life. Thus the chalk contains remains of those flying and swimming rectals, the pterodactyl, the ichthyosaurus, and the plesiosaurus, which are found in no later deposits, but abounded in preceding ages, the chambered shells called emonites and belemnites which are so characteristic of the period preceding the Cretaceous, in like manner die with it, but, among these fading remainders of a previous state of things, are some very modern forms of life, looking like Yankee peddlers among a tribe of red Indians, crocodiles of modern type appear, bony fishes, many of them very similar to existing species, almost supplant the forms of fish which predominate in more ancient seas, and many kinds of living shellfish first become known to us in the chalk. The vegetation acquires a modern aspect. A few living animals are not even distinguishable as species from those which existed at that remote epoch. The Globigerina of the present day, for example, is not different specifically from that of the chalk, and the same may be said of many other foraminifera. I think it probable that critical and unprejudiced examination will show that more than one species of much higher animals have had a similar longevity. But the only example which I can at present give confidently is the snake's head lamp shell Terebritulina caput serpentis, which lives in our English seas and abounded as Terebritulina the striata of authors in the chalk. The longest line of human ancestry must hide its diminished head before the pedigree of this insignificant shellfish. We Englishmen are proud to have an ancestor who was present at the Battle of Hastings. The ancestors of Terebritulina caput serpentis may have been present at a battle of Ichthyosauria in that part of the sea which, when the chalk was forming, flowed over the site of Hastings, while all around has changed. This Terebritulina has peacefully propagated its species from generation to generation, and stands to this day as a living testimony to the continuity of the present with the past history of the globe. Up to this moment I have stated, so far as I know, 
nothing but well-authenticated facts, and the immediate conclusions which they force upon the mind, but the mind is so constituted that it does not willingly rest in facts and immediate causes, but seeks always after a knowledge of the remoter links in the chain of causation, taking the many changes of any given spot of the earth's surface, from sea to land, and from land to sea, as an established fact. We cannot refrain from asking ourselves how these changes have occurred, and when we have explained them as they must be explained by the alternate slow movements of elevation and depression which have affected the crusts of the earth, we go still further back, and ask, why these movements? I am not certain that anyone can give you a satisfactory answer to that question. Assuredly I cannot. All that can be said for certain island that such movements are part of the ordinary course of nature inasmuch as they are going on at the present time, direct proof may be given, that some parts of the land of the northern hemisphere are at this moment insensibly rising and others insensibly sinking, and there is indirect but perfectly satisfactory proof, that an enormous area now covered by the Pacific has been deep in thousands of feet since the present inhabitants of that sea came into existence, thus there is not a shadow of a reason for believing that the physical changes of the globe, in past times, have been affected by other than natural causes, is there any more reason for believing that the concomitant modifications in the forms of the living inhabitants of the globe have been brought about in any other ways, before attempting to answer this question, let us try to form a distinct mental picture of what has happened in some special case, the crocodiles are animals which, as a group, had a very vast antiquity, they abounded ages before the chalk was deposited, they throng the rivers in warm climates at the present day, there is a difference in the form of the joints of the backbone, and in some minor particulars, between the crocodiles of the present epoch and those which lived before the chalk, but, in the Cretaceous epoch, as I have already mentioned, the crocodiles had assumed the modern type of structure, notwithstanding this, the crocodiles of the chalk are not identically the same as those which lived in the times called older tertiary which succeeded the Cretaceous epoch, and the crocodiles of the older tertiaries are not identical with those of the newer tertiaries, nor are these identical with existing forms. I leave open the question whether particular species may have lived on from epoch to epoch, but each epoch has had its peculiar crocodiles, though all, since the chalk, have belonged to the modern type, and differ simply in their proportions and in such structural particulars as are discernible only to trained eyes. How is the existence of this long succession of different species of crocodiles to be accounted for? Only two suppositions seem to be open to us either each species of crocodile has been specially created, or it has arisen out of some pre-existing form by the operation of natural causes. Choose your hypothesis, I have chosen mine. I can find no warranty for believing in the distinct creation of a score of successive species of crocodiles in the course of countless ages of time. Science gives no countenance to such a wild fancy, nor can even the perverse ingenuity of a commentator pretend to discover the sense, in the simple words in which the writer of Genesis records the proceeding of the fifth and sixth days of the creation. On the other hand, I see no good reason for doubting the necessary alternative, that all these varied species have been evolved from pre-existing crocodilian forms by the operation of causes as completely a part of the common order of nature as those which have affected the changes of the inorganic world. Few will venture to affirm that the reasoning which applies to crocodiles loses its force among other animals or among plants. If one series of species has come into existence by the operation of natural causes, it seems folly to deny that all may have arisen in the same way. 
A small beginning has led us to a great ending. If I were to put the bit of chalk with which we started into the hot but obscure flame of burning hydrogen, it would presently shine like the sun. It seems to me that this physical metamorphosis is no false image of what has been the result of our subjecting it to a jet of fervent, bono wise brilliant, thought tonight. It has become luminous, and its clear rays, penetrating the abyss of the remote past, have brought within our come some stages of the evolution of the earth, and in the shifting, without haste, but without rest, of the land and sea, as in the endless variation of the forms assumed by living beings. We had observed nothing but the natural product of the forces originally possessed by the substance of the universe. A bit of sponge written on Scotland, from Glimpses of Nature, by A. Wilson, this morning, despite the promise of rain overnight, has broken with all the signs and symptoms of a bright July day. The firth is bathed in sunlight, and the wavelets at full tide are kissing the strand, making a soft musical ripple as they retire, and as the pebbles run down the sandy slope on the retreat of the waves. Beyond the farthest contact of the tide is a line of seaweed dried and desiccated, mixed up with which, in confusing array, are masses of shells, and such a la padrita of the sea. Tossed up at our very feet is a dried fragment of sponge, which doubtless the unkind waves tore from its rocky bed. It is not a large portion of spongeless, but its structure is nevertheless to be fairly made out, and some reminiscences of its history gleaned. For the sake of occupying the by no means bad half hour before breakfast, what is a sponge? Is a question which you may well ask as a necessary preliminary to the understanding of its personality. The questionings of childhood and the questionings of science run in precisely similar grooves. What is it? And how does it live? And where does it come from? Are equally the inquiries of childhood and of the deepest philosophy which seeks to determine the whole history of life. This morning, we cannot do better than follow in the footsteps of the child, and to the question, what is a sponge? I fancy science will be able to return a direct answer. First of all, we may note that a sponge, as we know it in common life, is the horny skeleton or framework which was made by, and which supported, the living parts. These living parts consist of minute masses of that living jelly to which the name of protoplasm has been applied. This, in truth, is the universal matter of life. It is the one substance with which life everywhere is associated, and as we see it simply in the sponge, so also we behold it only in more complex guise in the man. Now, the living parts of this dried castaway sponge were found both in its interior and on its surface. They line the canals that everywhere permeate the sponge substance, and microscopic examination has told us a great deal about their nature. Illustration, Figure 1, Development of a sponge Olynthus. 1, The Egg, 2, 3, and 4, the process of egg division, 5 and 6, the gastrula stage, 7, the perfect sponge, 4, whether found in the canals of the sponge themselves, or embedded in the sponge substance, the living sponge particles are represented each by a semi-independent mass of protoplasm, so that the first view I would have you take of the sponge is a living mass, island that it is a colony and not a single unit, it is composed, in other words, of aggregated masses of living particles, which put out one from the other, and manufacture the supporting skeleton we know as, the sponge of commerce, itself, under the microscope, these living sponge units appear in various sizes and shapes, some of them are formless, and, as to shape, ever altering masses, resembling that familiar animalcule of our pools we know as the amoeba, these members of the sponge colony form the bulk of the population, they are embedded in the sponge substance, 
they wander about through the meshes of the sponge, they seize food and flourish and grow, and they probably also give origin to the eggs from which new sponges are in due course produced. More characteristic however, are certain units of this living sponge colony which live in the lining membrane of the canals. In point of fact, a sponge is a kind of Venice, a certain proportion of whose inhabitants, like those of the famous queen of the Adriatic herself, live on the banks of the waterways. Just as in Venice we find the provisions for the denizens of the city brought to the inhabitants by the canals, so from the water, which, as we shall see, is perpetually circulating through a sponge, the members of the sponge colony receive their food. Look, again, at the sponge fragment which lies before us. You perceive half a dozen large holes or so, each opening on a little eminence, as it were. These apertures, bear in mind, we call oscula. They are the exits of the sponge domain, but the close inspection of a sponge shows that it is riddled with finer and smaller apertures. These latter are the pores, and they form the entrances to the sponge domain. On the banks of the canal you may see growing plentifully in summertime a green sponge, which is the common freshwater species. Now, if you drop a living specimen of this species into a bowl of water, and put some powdered indigo into the water, you may note how the currents are perpetually being swept in by the pores and out by the oscula. In every living sponge this perpetual and unceasing circulation of water proceeds. This is the sole evidence the unassisted sight receives of the vitality of the sponge colony and the importance of this circulation in aiding life in these depths, to be fairly carried out cannot readily be overestimated. Let us now see how this circulation is maintained. Microscopically regarded, we see here and there, in the sides of the sponge passages, little chambers and recesses which remind one of the passing places in a narrow canal. Lining these chambers, we see living sponge units of a type different from the shapeless specks we noted to occur in the meshes of the sponge substance itself. The units of the recesses each consist of a living particle, whose free extremity is raised into a kind of collar, from which projects a lash-like filament known as a flagellum. This lash is in constant movement, it waves to and fro in the water, and the collection of lashes we see in any one chamber acts as a veritable brush, which by its movement not only sweeps water in by the pores, but sends it onwards through the sponge, and in due time sends it out by the bigger holes, or oscula. This constant circulation in the sponge discharges more than one important function, for, as already noted, it serves the purpose of nutrition, in that the particles on which sponge life is supported are swept into the colony. Again, the fresh currents of water carry with them the oxygen gas which is a necessity of sponge existence, as of human life, while, thirdly, waste matters, inevitably alike in sponge and in man as the result of living, are swept out of the colony and discharged into the sea beyond. Our bit of sponge has thus grown from a mere dry fragment into a living reality. It is a community in which already, low as it island the work of life has come to be discharged by distinct and fairly specialized beings. The air of new sponge life is inaugurated by means of egg development, although there exists another fashion that of gemmules or buds whereby out of the parental substance young sponges are produced. A sponge egg develops, as do all eggs, in a definite cycle. It undergoes division figure 1, its one cell becomes many, and its many cells arrange themselves first of all into a cup-like form 5, 6 and 7, which may remain in this shape if the sponge is a simple one, or become developed into the more complex shape of the sponges we know. In every museum you may see specimens of a beautiful vase-like structure seemingly made of spun glass. This is a flinty sponge, the Venus flower basket, 
whose presence in the sponge family redeems it from the charge that it contains no things of beauty whatever. So, too, the rocks are full of fossil sponges, many of quaint form. Our piece of sponge, as we may understand, has yet other bits of history attached to it. Meanwhile, think over the sponge and its ways, and learn from it that out of the dry things of life, science weaves many a fairy tale, the greatest sea wave ever known from light science in leisure hours. By R.A. Proctor, August 13, 1868. One of the most terrible calamities which has ever visited a people befell the unfortunate inhabitants of Peru. In that land earthquakes are nearly as common as rainstorms are with us, and shocks by which whole cities are changed into a heap of ruins are by no means infrequent. Yet even in Peru, the land of earthquakes, as Humboldt has termed it, no such catastrophe as that of August, 1868, had occurred within the memory of man. It was not one city which was laid in ruins, but the whole empire. Those who perished were counted by tens of thousands while the property destroyed by the earthquake was valued at millions of pounds sterling. Although so many months have passed since this terrible calamity took place, scientific men have been busily engaged, until quite recently, in endeavoring to ascertain the real significance of the various events which were observed during and after the occurrence of the earthquake. The geographers of Germany have taken a special interest in interpreting the evidence afforded by this great manifestation of nature's powers. Two papers have been written recently on the great earthquake of August 14, 1868 one by Professor von Hochstetter, the other by Herr von Pschuti, which present an interesting account of the various effects, by land and by sea, which resulted from the tremendous upcathing force to which the western flanks of the Peruvian Indies were subjected on that day. The effects on land, although surprising and terrible, only differ in degree from those which have been observed in other earthquakes. But the progress of the great sea wave which was generated by the upheaval of the Peruvian shores and propagated over the whole of the Pacific Ocean differs altogether from any earthquake phenomena before observed. Other earthquakes have indeed been followed by oceanic disturbances, but these have been accompanied by terrestrial motions, so as to suggest the idea that they had been caused by the motion of the sea bottom or of the neighboring land. In no instance has it ever before been known that a well-marked wave of enormous proportions should have been propagated over the largest ocean tract on our globe by an earth shock whose direct action was limited to a relatively small region, and that region not situated in the center, but on one side of the wide area traversed by the wave. We propose to give a brief sketch of the history of this enormous sea wave. In the first place, however, it may be well to remind the reader of a few of the more prominent features of the great shock to which this wave out its origin. It was at Arequipa, at the foot of the lofty volcanic mountain Misty, that the most terrible effects of the great earthquake were experienced. Within historic times Misty has poured forth no lava streams, but that the volcano is not extinct is clearly evidenced by the fact that in 1542 an enormous mass of dust and ashes was vomited forth from its crater. On August 14, 1868, Misty showed no signs of being disturbed. So far as the volcanic neighbor was concerned, the 44,000 inhabitants of Arequipa had no reason to anticipate the catastrophe which presently befell them. At five minutes past five an earthquake shock was experienced, which, though severe, seems to have worked little mischief. Half a minute later, however, a terrible noise was heard beneath the earth, a second shock more violent than the first was felt, and then began a swaying motion gradually increasing in intensity. In the course of the first minute this motion had become so violent that the inhabitants ran in terror out of their houses into the streets and squares. 
in the next two minutes the swaying movement had so increased that the more lightly built houses were cast to the ground, and the flying people could scarcely keep their feet. And now, says Wanfshuti, there followed during two or three minutes a terrible scene. The swaying motion which had hitherto prevailed changed into fierce vertical upheaval. The subterranean roaring increased in the most terrifying manner, then were heard the heart-piercing shrieks of the wretched people, the bursting of walls, the crashing fall of houses and churches, while over all rolled thick clouds of a yellowish-black dust, which, had they been poured forth many minutes longer, would have suffocated thousands, although the shocks had lasted but a few minutes, the whole town was destroyed, not one building remained uninjured, and there were few which did not lie in shapeless heaps of ruins. That Tacna and Arica the earth shock was less severe, but strange and terrible phenomena followed it, that the former place a circumstance occurred the cause and nature of which yet remain a mystery. About three hours after the earthquake in other words, at about eight o'clock in the evening an intensely brilliant light made its appearance above the neighboring mountains. It lasted for fully half an hour, and has been ascribed to the eruption of some as yet unknown volcano. That arica of the sea wave produced even more destructive effects than had been caused by the earthquake. About twenty minutes after the first earth shock the sea was seen to retire, as if about to leave the shores wholly dry, but presently its waters returned with tremendous force. A mighty wave, whose length seemed immeasurable, was seen advancing like a dark wall upon the unfortunate town, a large part of which was overwhelmed by it. Two ships, the Peruvian Corvette America, and the United States, double ender, watery were carried nearly half a mile to the north of Arica beyond the railroad which runs to Tacna, and there left stranded high and dry. This enormous wave was considered by the English vice-consul at Arica to have been fully fifty feet in height. That Calais three such waves swept in after the first shocks of earthquake. They overflowed nearly the whole of the town, the sea passing more than half a mile beyond its usual limits. That Ilai and Iquique similar phenomena were manifested that the former town the lava flowed in no less than five times, and each time with greater force. Afterward the motion gradually diminished, but even an hour and a half after the commencement of this strange disturbance the waves still ran forty feet above the ordinary level. Batakika the people beheld the inrushing wave while it was still a great way off. A dark blue mass of water some fifty feet in height was seen sweeping in upon the town with inconceivable rapidity. An island lying before the harbor was completely submerged by the great wave, which still came rushing on black with the mud and slime it had swept from the sea bottom. Those who witnessed its progress from the upper balconies of their houses, and presently saw its black mass rushing close beneath their feet, looked on their safety as a miracle. Many buildings were indeed washed away, and in the low-lying parts of the town there was a terrible loss of life. After passing far inland, the wave slowly returned seaward, and, Strangely enough, the sea, which elsewhere heaved and tossed for hours after the first great wave had swept over it, here came soon to a rest. That Kayao yet more singular instance was afforded of the effect which circumstances may have upon the motion of the sea after a great earthquake has disturbed it. In former earthquakes Kayao has suffered terribly from the effects of the great sea wave. In fact, on two occasions the whole town has been destroyed, and nearly all its inhabitants have been drowned through the inrush of precisely such waves as flowed into the ports of Arica and Kala. But upon this occasion the center of subterranean disturbance must have been so situated that either the wave was diverted from Kayao, or, more probably, two waves reached Kayao from different sources and at different times, so that the two undulations partly counteracted each other. Certain it is that, 
although the water retreated strangely from the coast near Kayato, insomuch that a wide tract of the sea bottom was uncovered, there was no inrushing wave comparable with those described above. The sea afterward rose and fell in an irregular manner, a circumstance confirming the supposition that the disturbance was caused by two distinct oscillations. Six hours after the occurrence of the earth shock the double oscillations seemed for a while to have worked themselves into a unison, for at this time three considerable waves rolled in upon the town, but clearly these waves must not be compared with those which in other instances had made their appearance within half an hour of the earth throes. There is little reason to doubt that if the separate oscillations had reinforced each other earlier, Kayato would have been completely destroyed. As it was, a considerable amount of mischief was effected, but the motion of the sea presently became irregular again, and so continued until the morning of August 14th, when it began to ebb with some regularity. But during the 14th there were occasional renewals of the irregular motion, and several days elapsed before the regular ebb and flow of the sea were resumed. Such were among the phenomena presented in the region where the earthquake itself was felt. It will be seen at once that within this region, or rather along that portion of the sea coast which falls within the central region of disturbance, the true character of the sea wave generated by the earthquake could not be recognized. If a rock fall from a lofty cliff into a comparatively shallow sea, the water around the place where the rock has fallen is disturbed in an irregular manner. The sea seems at one place to a leak up and down, elsewhere one wave seems to beat against another, and the sharpest eye can detect no law in the motion of the seething waters, but presently, outside the scene of disturbance, a circular wave is seen to form, and if the motion of this wave be watched it is seen to present the most striking contrast with the turmoil and confusion at its center, it sweeps onward and outward in a regular undulation, gradually it loses its circular figure unless the sea bottom happens to be unusually level showing that although its motion is everywhere regular, it is not everywhere equally swift. A wave of this sort, though incomparably vaster, swept swiftly away on every side from the scene of the great earthquake near the Peruvian Indies. It has been calculated that the width of this wave varied from 1 million to 5 million feet, or, roughly, from 200 to 1,000 miles, while, when in mid-Pacific, the length of the wave, measured along its summit in a widely curved path from one side to another of the great ocean, cannot have been less than 8,000 miles. We cannot tell how deep-seated was the center of subterranean action, but there can be no doubt it was very deep indeed, because otherwise the shock felt in towns separated from each other by hundreds of miles could not have been so nearly contemporaneous. Therefore the portion of the Earth's crust up heft must have been enormous for the length of the region where the direct effects of the earthquake were perceived is estimated by Professor von Hochstetter at no less than 240 miles. The breadth of the region is unknown, because the slope of the Andes on one side and the ocean on the other concealed the motion of the Earth's crust. The great ocean wave swept, as we have said, in all directions around the scene of the Earth throw. Over a large part of its course its passage was unknotted because in the open sea the effects even of so vast an undulation could not be perceived. A ship would slowly rise as the crest of the great wave passed under her, and then as slowly sink again. This may seem strange, at first sight, when it is remembered that in reality the great sea wave we are considering swept at the rate of three or four hundred sea miles an hour over the larger part of the Pacific. But when the true character of ocean waves is understood, when it is remembered that there is no transference of the water itself at this enormous rate, but simply a transmission of motion precisely as when in a high wind waves sweep rapidly over a cornfield, while yet each cornstalk remains fixed in the ground, 
it will be seen that the effects of the great sea wave could only be perceived near the shore, even there, as we shall presently see, there was much to convey the impression that the land itself was rising and falling rather than that the deep was moved, but among the hundreds of ships which were sailing upon the Pacific when its length and breadth were traversed by the great sea wave, there was not one in which any unusual motion was perceived, in somewhat less than three hours after the occurrence of the earthquake the ocean wave inundated the port of Coquimbo, on the Chilean seaboard, some 800 miles from Arica, an hour or so later it had reached Constitucion, 450 miles farther south, and here for some three hours the sea rose and fell with strange violence, farther south, along the shore of Chile, even to the island of Chiloé, the shore wave traveled, though with continually diminishing force, lying, doubtless, to the resistance which the irregularities of the shore opposed to its progress, the northerly shore wave seems to have been more considerable, and a moment's study of a chart of the two Americas will show that this circumstance is highly significant, when we remember that the principal effects of the land shock were experienced within that angle which the Peruvian Andes form with the long north and south line of the Chilean and Bolivian Andes, we see at once that, had the center of the subterranean action been near the scene where the most destructive effects were perceived, no sea wave, or but a small one, could have been sent toward the shores of North America, the projecting shores of northern Peru and Ecuador could not have failed to divert the sea wave toward the west, and though a reflected wave might have reached California, it would only have been after a considerable interval of time, and with dimensions much less than those of, 